listening to the CIPD podcast series. Organisations that are in a situation where what has worked in the past is no longer working are not going to solve those problems by doing the things that they always used to do. And neuroscience gives you something different, gives you a different data, gives you different evidence base. And again, for sceptical, intelligent leaders... It gives them the why. That was Jan Hills, founder of the consultancy Head, Heart and Brain, who spoke to me recently about the key role neuroscience plays in a variety of issues in the workplace. But what can neuroscience really have to do with HR management? And if there are clear-cut benefits to business, why aren't employers making more of them? These aren't new questions. Back in 2012, the CIPD published the Learning and Talent Development Survey. It highlighted just how little most employers understood about emerging thinking from neuroscience, cognitive research and the behavioural sciences generally. And now the CIPD has published three reports exploring the potential that scientific thinking could have, specifically for learning and development. Eugene Sadler-Smith is Professor of Organisational Behaviour at the University of Surrey and his new work on insight, intuition and creativity forms one of the three reports. But what exactly does he mean by insight and intuition? Intuitions are effectively charged judgments that arise rapidly, non-consciously, through holistic associations. Now, there's a lot in there, but it's a complex construct, and that definition, I think, captures them all. So just to make sure I've got my head around this, we're talking about that little random flash that pops into your head for no good reason you can think about? Well, yes and no. It pops into some people's heads. For other people, it pops into other parts of their body. So people talk about gut feeling, and if you ask people to point to where it is, they'll point to different portions of their anatomy. But it is, it's that signal that pops into conscious awareness. And I think if we call it conscious awareness, that covers all the possibilities of in the gut, in the head, or wherever it might be in the chest. So it's a realisation? It's not a realisation, no, because insight is a realisation. Intuition is more of a sense. Insight is, for me, the, the key difference is this. With an intuition, I cannot put the sense that I have into a literal expression. It can only be expressed metaphorically or in terms of emotion or affect. Insight, on the other hand, is, for me, literally seeing into the problem, seeing inside the problem, connecting up the dots and being able to articulate the solution to the problem. And Professor Sadler-Smith had a great example to help illustrate the concepts of insight and intuition. So if insight is about connecting together dots, then intuition is about recognising patterns. If we go back in the intuition research uh, 30, 40 years, Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon did research on chess experts. And he was fascinated about how chess experts make their moves in games. And it turns out from Simon's research that their approach isn't a kind of analytical approach we'd expect it to be, but it's more intuitive. But it's an intuition that's based on pattern recognition. And Simon's estimate was that a chess expert has in her or his long-term memory 50,000 patterns built up over 10,000 hours of practice. So this kind of 10,000 hours or 10-year rule makes a lot of sense because over that time span it's possible to build up 
lots and lots of patterns and if intuition is about holistic associations which is effectively pattern recognition then when one sees a particular let's say constellation of cues in a situation be it the interview situation or whatever then the process of intuition somehow matches the cues to the pattern and arrives at a judgment and experts can often arrive at a judgment but not actually say how they arrived at a judgment. So that takes us back to this old unsatisfactory definition, which in some ways is works. They know, but sometimes they don't know how they know. Of course, it's all very well understanding what insight and intuition are, but don't you need considerable expertise to really harness their benefits? What we haven't really talked about is this idea that you need to bring expertise to the table first, mm -hmm. don't you, to maximise this, which sounds obvious, but actually isn't, is it? There's more to it. Expertise is important, I think, in, in intuition and in insight. So if we take insight first of all, if insight is about connecting dots together, then if you've not got the dots in the first place to connect together, then it's quite difficult to do that. So this idea of naivety and creativity, I'm not, I'm not convinced by that argument because I think if we look at, if we look at um, you know, the history of scientific discovery and creativity in the arts, what do we see? We see people who were deeply immersed in their field from a very early age. So you take your Steve Jobs, your Bill Gates. They were immersed in the technology, the emergent technology from their teens. So they were experts by the time they were 25, if you say the 10 year rule for expertise. So by that time, you've got all the dots um, or many of the dots that, that, that can then be joined together. And this is an important point, isn't it? Because I think when people hear us talking about insight, intuition, it all sounds a bit woolly, it all sounds a bit, you know, the easy way to get somewhere. Mm. But actually, it's not that at all, is it? Because you're saying you do need expertise, you do need to put in the hard graft. Yep. Then put yourself in a place where you can add this additional ingredient, which will take you to the next level. Yeah, takes you to the next level. And it is about hard graft. So um, if we take intuition, as another example alongside insight so for insight you need the dots to be able to join them together for, for intuition intuition is about pattern recognition so in my definition I talked about holistic associations and that means pulling together um, lots of separate pieces of information parallel processing it and coming up with a judgment so as you develop expertise and experience within your profession, you simultaneously develop a capacity for insight and intuition. But we've all had gut feelings that turned out to be wrong, so you also need tools to identify which insights are the ones you should act on. We've all had gut feelings that haven't worked. You know, so famous quote from Bill Gates is when CNN asked him, does he use his intuition? And he admitted readily to the fact that he uses his intuition. But the interesting thing that Bill Gates said was he admits that sometimes it is wrong, but he knows that his, and this is my phrase, his batting average is good enough that if he keeps swinging, he'll hit the ball more than he misses the ball. Intuition is powerful and it can be a, a very useful decision-making tool for, for, for managers and for all of us in our personal and professional lives. But intuition is also perilous and used incorrectly or in the wrong hands, it can be dangerous because one of the things we need to be aware of is not confusing it with bias, mm. prejudice, wishful thinking, 
fear, the list could go on. I mean, we know from recruitment and selection research that in selection interviews we tend to favour candidates who we perceive as being like ourselves. Mm. Now that's not an intuition, that's a bias. Part of the skill of developing intuition is being so self-aware that you're able to say, hang on, this isn't an intuition, this is me being biased, or this is me wishing for an outcome that I dearly hope for against all of the odds. It's an art, I think. It's a subtle art, isn't it? And one that we can't expect to be too uh, quantifiable. And one where we need to be very self-aware and self-critical. So this is a sophisticated tool, isn't it? It's a very powerful, it's a very sophisticated tool because we need to be, as you've said, self-aware and self-critical. I think if we are both of those things, we can hone good intuition. One of the things that we can do is surround ourselves with people who are likely to be naysayers and challengers. So a chief executive, one of the things that a chief executive should not do if he or she wants to build good intuitions is surround him or herself with an echo chamber yes, of ma'am. their own yes, making. Yeah. But to surround them, or at least have in, in, in the senior management, management team, um, some naysayers. Ruth Stewart is research advisor for L&D at the CIPD. I asked her why understanding this sort of thinking is important from the CIPD's point of view. When we look at concepts like neuroscience or concepts relating to neuroscience like intuition and insights, what they really give us is a fresh perspective on learning and the learning process. And not just learning, but all aspects of HR management. So these ideas really do contribute to new thinking around how we approach reward, how we approach change management, or how people learn in the workplace. There's such a a vast spectrum of of new insight and new ideas out there that we can really learn from. And Ruth gave me her key points to take from Professor Sadler-Smith's research. I think the key point for me from his research is really around understanding the insight process and how we gain insight and how we come up with new ideas. Um, So often things will just come into our mind and we might not have any knowledge of the process behind it. We have that aha moment where we find the solution but we don't necessarily know the steps that have happened before that. And what Professor Eugene's research really does is tell us how it works. So give us a a really clear step-by-step process for how ideation and insight generation really work and that gives us more self-awareness if we know how it works we can really understand the processes that are at play earlier we heard from jan hills the founding partner of head heart and brain as she explained the consultancy works with the head the cognitive rational content the heart the emotional content and the brain using the latest findings from neuroscience and if any of that is sounding a touch fluffy to some of you you might be interested to hear that before she set up Head, Heart and Brain, Jan was Chief Operating Officer for an investment bank. So with that background in mind, I asked her how she came to believe that neuroscience has a role to play in raising organisational performance and maximising the bottom line. So very hard-headed business person, what drew you to this thought about neuroscience? Because I know you have a qualification, don't you, in neuroleadership? Yes, I do. I was one of the first group of people to go through that programme. I guess most of these things are a journey, aren't they? So I started off very hard-headed business person and there's nothing more difficult than actually getting investment bankers to listen to things about change and their own self-awareness. And that kind of led me down a route of saying, well, how can you actually 
make this real for people, give them some real tools that help them with the way they understand themselves and understand their followers. Right. So that led me to actually neuro-linguistic programming, which a lot of people get muddled up with neuroscience. Okay. Being involved in that gives you a fantastic toolkit, really. But the neuroscience attracted me because it started to tell us why neuro-linguistic programming works. And as I got more into it, I found that it tells very skeptical leaders about why doing what we traditionally call soft skills works, and that seems to take away quite a lot of their resistance. After speaking to Professor Sadler-Smith, I was interested to find out exactly how this neuroscientific thinking is put into practice on the ground, and I asked Jan how it plays into creativity and innovation. I guess the way I think about it is it kind of gives you a meta level of understanding about those things. So we know creativity is a process, that it's not something some people are gifted at and other people aren't. The whole left brain, right brain theory in terms of creativity has largely been discredited. But what I think the neuroscience gives you is how the different elements of the creative process actually happen and therefore what the implications are for how you need to set your business up, set yourself up, set your team up to have more chance of quality creativity happening. So creating an environment where you're going to enhance your chances. Exactly, yeah. And here's an example from Jan of something very simple you can do to use these tools to harness creativity in your own organisation. One of the things that we do with, with leaders is use a process called the Disney Imagineering process. And the reason we use that is Disney kind of knew how the brain worked, even if he didn't actually look at the sort of neuroscience. So what that process does is actually suggest that you go into a relaxed place, so a different room, right, <laughs> and that you use that relaxed environment to create your ideas. And there's even a physiology to it. So you lay back, you put your head back, you kind of flop around, you sit on comfortable cushions, all of those things help people to be in that mindset where they're much more open to ideas. And we know that when the brain is relaxed or when the body's relaxed, when the brain is in a good mood, it sees things in a much more open, expansive way rather than when you know you're stressed or tense where your literal sort of vision of something narrows it's a familiar idea and if it sounds like something that's strictly for silicon valley startups think again this isn't feel good time wasting because there is as jan pointed out hard science at play here hard science around people solve more problems when they're in a good mood when they're having fun and hard science by a psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson, has shown that the more positive experiences we have, the more broadly we see the world and the more open we are to ideas. And those are just the sorts of patterns that you need to be creative. I asked Jan what sort of organisations are taking an interest in this scientific approach. 
What we're finding is a lot of scepticism with HR people and a lot less with business managers. So the people who are coming to talk to us are really saying what we're currently doing isn't working and we know we need to do something else. And because this gives people the answer to why things work, they're attracted to this. So our clients range very broadly from the civil service. I spent last week with 150 managers from the MOD right. looking at how the brain worked and what that means for change and the way they lead people. Um, industry, so a lot of the retail industry looking at how they engage people more and how they accelerate their development um, through to, you know, HR functions, trying to help their business partners to be more solution focused rather than problem focused. So being able to ask powerful questions which create more insight in their clients. Hearing Jan remark that she's finding a great deal of scepticism in HR departments, I asked Ruth Stewart, the CIPD's research advisor for learning and development, why she thought HRs might be reluctant to get involved and at least explore these ideas. I think there's a sense that people don't feel they have enough knowledge yet. So some of these concepts are reasonably complex and they can be misinterpreted. And perhaps people worry that if they talk about these ideas, they might not get it 100% right. They might look silly in front of their board. They might not be able to explain it properly. If you'd like to know more about the ideas we've discussed in this podcast and how you might use them to benefit your own organisation, here's Ruth Stewart on how to get started. A great start would be to have a read of the three reports we've recently published on fresh thinking and learning and development. And we also have a report we published in 2012 called From Ready State to Steady State. And that was really introducing these concepts as well and looking at how HR and L&D professionals can use them in practice. Uh, if people are more interested, they might want to consider one of the neuroscience workshops that we've got coming up. And you can find out more about that on the CIPD website. And you're going to be doing more research soon, aren't you? I know you're looking for participants, people who are actually investigating this now. Yeah, absolutely. So we're really wanting examples of organisations that are using ideas from neuroscience or other behavioural sciences and putting them into practice. We'd like to hear from organisations that are using it to change their approach to learning and development or leadership development or change management. We really want to know what's working and why it's working. OK, so if, if people would like to get involved, how can, they, how can they get in touch with you? I'd really love to hear from anybody that wants to get involved. Uh, my email address is r.stuart, that's S-T-U-A-R-T, at cipd.co.uk. Please do get in touch. And can people give you a call? Yeah, absolutely. If they go through the CIPD switchboard, they can reach me there. So if your organisation is already using ideas taken from neuroscience and putting them into practice, we'd love to hear about it because this is a subject we'll be coming back to. You can get in touch with Ruth at r.stuart, that's S-T-U-A-R-T, at cipd.co.uk or just give her a call through the CIPD switchboard. That's it for this month. Join me next time. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series. 